Okay, like Jason said, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I had him read 17 through 31 so that, of course, we can get the context, the whole context of what we're talking about here today. Last week, we did a deep dive into 1 Corinthians 1.17, that one verse. Paul says in verse 17 that God did not send him to baptize, remember, meaning in the context that he was writing that he wasn't supposed to be on a mission from God to deal with or to have to deal with the divisions that had uh, arisen amongst the Corinthians in their church. But instead, God had sent Paul to preach the gospel, right? And he said that he wasn't to use cleverness of speech as he preached that gospel because if he did so, it would make the cross of Christ of none effect. Or some translations say that the cross would become void or lose its power. This was so because the gospel is to be conveyed with simplicity because it is simple. And that simplicity, in this case, just consists of Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. If Christ and him crucified is not the front and center, the, the, the first and foremost, the foundation of our preaching then Christ's cross becomes void of its luster. Now remember, last week we, we talked about the fact that the gospel doesn't need to be dressed up to, to, for it to be, become more palatable to people, right? You don't put a lipstick, lipstick on a pig. Remember that? It's attractive enough just the way it is to those who are being saved, right? In fact, verse 18 of our text says just that. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those, or I should say, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What do we learn from that verse? Well, first and foremost, we learn that there are two groups of people that hear the gospel, okay? Those that are perishing and those that are being saved, and that's it. Those are the only two groups that hear the gospel. In the gospel of Matthew chapter 13, verse 36, the disciples of Jesus asked him to explain the parable of the tares of the field to them. And Jesus answered them and said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom and the tares are the sons of the evil one. Church, there are those who are perishing, and there are those who are being saved. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11, please listen carefully, beginning in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, such were, past tense, some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God, church. There are those that are perishing and there are those that are being saved. And in the gospel of John chapter 3, verse 36, we read, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who, do, who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Church, there are those that are perishing. There are those that are being saved. Now, what else do we learn from verse 18? Besides the fact, I should say, that there are those who are perishing and those that are being saved. Well, we also learn that, and I'm quoting Paul, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the what? Power of God. What does the apostle Paul mean when he says that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing? Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 right there. Next chapter over, chapter 2, verse 14. We'll hone in a little bit on it. Paul says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them. Not will not. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So Paul is saying that it's the things of the Spirit of God that are foolish and cannot be understood by the natural man. So that begs the question, what are the things of the Spirit of God then? What are they? Paul tells us in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians 2. First in verse 1 he says, that he didn't come to them with superiority of speech or of wisdom, but instead he came proclaiming to them the testimony of God. What's the testimony of God, Paul? Look at verse 2. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Bam! That's it. That's the testimony of God. My son and my son crucified. There he goes again, the Apostle Paul and his gospel. So back to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1, and the question I posed 25 seconds ago, what does Paul mean when he says the things of the Spirit of God? He means Jesus Christ and him crucified, period. 
So what then in 1 Corinthians 2.14 is foolishness to those who are perishing? What is foolishness to those that are perishing? Well, remember, there are those that are being saved and there are those that are perishing. And they're both hearing what? Gospel. So the gospel is foolishness to them. They don't get it. Jesus Christ and him crucified makes no sense whatsoever to those that are perishing. It is utter nonsense to them. Why? Because the only way that the natural man or a natural man in, in, in his natural, depraved, sin-on-a-stick way can possibly understand Jesus Christ and him crucified is if the Holy Spirit makes him understand it. And would you like to know how it is that the Holy Spirit makes someone who thinks that Jesus Christ and him crucified is foolishness? Would you like to know how the Holy Spirit moves that person from thinking that the gospel is foolishness to thinking that the gospel is wise and true and the most powerful thing in the entire universe? Would you like to know how? Does Paul say, oh, no, I was just playing. It, it ain't the Holy Spirit that makes a man believe in Jesus. The man believes in Jesus based upon his own free will because God would never, ever, ever interfere with man's free will because then we would just be a bunch of puppets and God doesn't want a bunch of robots worshiping him. No, sir, he only wants people who really want a relationship with him. God doesn't need you to have a relationship with him. That's not why he did this whole gig. He did it for his glory. Really? Is that what Paul says? Is that how Paul illustrates the way in which the Holy Spirit brings a man from thinking that the gospel is foolishness to thinking that it is all of a sudden the saving power of God? No, that's not what Paul says. That's not what Peter says. That's not what James says. It's not what John says. And it's not what Jesus says. So how does God the Father take someone who thinks the gospel's foolishness to, to, to thinking that the gospel is the best, next best thing since sliced bread? How does God take the natural man in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, who Paul says does not accept the things of God and make him accept the things of God, namely Jesus Christ and him crucified? How does God do that? Well, first, you need to know why God does it. I should say why God has to do it. Why does he have to do it? Why does God have to initiate this action in order for men to believe the gospel? Because the Bible teaches that the natural man is morally unable to do what is good. At least his good works are not quote unquote good in God's eyes. That's for sure. Remember, we've gone over this many times. But there are always people listening who don't know the gospel. And there are always people listening who are being drawn by the Father to the Son. 
And so these things must be said often, not to get on people's nerves, but because they are the avenue by which people are saved. The spoken word. Paul tells the Ephesians that the reason why God has to do it is because the natural man is dead in his trespasses and sins. And in that state, man is without God and without hope in the world, right? All you seasoned saints will shake your head. And as I touched on last week, Paul does not say that it's because of our merit or our works that God decides to act upon us and make us born again. Paul says the exact opposite in Ephesians. He says it's solely and unequivocally by God's grace that you are saved. It's by the kind intention of his will that he raises up spiritually dead men and women and saves them in Christ Jesus. Dead men do not have any freestanding to come to God in and of themselves. Dead men do not have any freestanding, free will, free inspiration to come to God in and of themselves. Jesus says in John 3 that you can only be born again if you are born from above first. Jesus said that in the context of salvation, that without me, you could do nothing. That's the context there, salvation. Folks, how, how incredibly straight our crooked doctrines would be and how much unity there would be in the body of Christ if men and women would simply be taught to interpret the scriptures in context. All the error that's out there is because people take scripture out of context. They don't know how to study the Bible. That includes pastors, unfortunately. So now that we know why God has to bring us to salvation, let's look at how he does it. And you may be thinking, well, we know how he does it, Mike. He does it through the preaching of the gospel. We talked about that last week. That's true. But what I mean when I pose the question to you this morning is, how does God do it? I'm talking about the inward transformation that takes place in you that makes you want to believe. That's what I'm talking about. How does God take one who is dead in their trespasses and sins and make them alive unto Christ in their heart? Just realized that pencil sticking out of my pocket. Okay. First and foremost, the Holy Spirit has to make you understand and accept the fact that you are a sinner and as such an enemy of God. People don't like to talk about sin today. It doesn't fill the offering bucket very well, does it? 
People go through life thinking that the gospel is foolishness because they feel that they are good people or at least good enough to get into heaven. And so in their mind, they don't need the gospel. They don't need church. They don't need fellow Christians. They don't need anything. They're good. So through the Holy Spirit, the Father makes one see that they are not as good as they think they are, actually, that they are not good at all. And here's another dirty word that nobody likes to talk about from the pulpit these days. That's called conviction. Conviction. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 8, and he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Jesus said that. The Holy Spirit convicts them of sin because they don't believe in me. In other words, in order to believe in me, you must be convicted that you're a sinner. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, and shows us our need for God. This is usually the first step in God regenerating our hearts and bringing us to the place where we want to believe. Everybody with me on that? It's usually the first step. Paul gives a, a great summation of all this and what we are learning this morning I would say from beginning to end in Titus. If you want to turn there, you can. Uh, Titus chapter 3, 5 through 7. Paul sums this up. And like I said, I'm not hitting hard on this because we talk about it all the time, but it fits these verses, the, the exegesis of these verses in 1 Corinthians 1. Titus chapter 3, beginning with verse 5. Uh, he saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Think about that for a minute. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay, so right there, Paul says it. Not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness. Remember, Paul has already told us in Romans 3 that there is no one that's righteous, not even one. And there are none natural men who seek after God on their own. And so there's your free will. Not too free, is it? It's all God and none of you. It's all monergism, no synergism. You can only be saved by God's washing regeneration. Paul says to Titus, the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit 
through Jesus Christ our Savior, being justified by his grace. That's how you claim your inheritance that we talked about last week. Remember? The inheritance that was put aside for you from before the foundations of the world. God chose you and predestined you before he created you. Before he created the world. In his mind, he made you an error. And an <laughs> H-E-I-R. Sorry. He put your name in the Lamb's book of life. How about that? That way. Okay. You're the elect of God, the chosen of Almighty God. If indeed His Holy Spirit has or is in the process of regenerating your heart, you could be being saved right now by what you're hearing. I hope, I pray, somebody is. And that actually begs another question. How do we know for sure that the Holy Spirit is regenerating or has regenerated our hearts. How do we know for sure? We begin with our text. For the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Those who have not been saved reject the preaching of the gospel slash the cross as foolishness. And they will perish into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth because they have not believed. Luke 13, 28. On the other hand, those marked for salvation, those who are being regenerated, well, they see the gospel, the preaching of the cross, as the power of God unto salvation, they get it. That's what our text says in verse 18. They get it. Now let's say that's you. And I pray that's you. That power of God that Paul speaks of is, as we have seen, it is the Holy Spirit regenerating your unbelieving dead hearts by infusing his power into the very depths of our being and in so doing, washing us clean through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Making you justified by his grace alone through faith, the faith that he just infused into your very self, thereby making you willing, making you willing to serve God. You weren't willing before. Remember? I used to make fun of Christians. Anybody in here make fun of born-again Christians before you were saved? You weren't there before. You weren't willing. The cross was foolishness to you when you were perishing and you wanted nothing to do with the things of God. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5, you don't have to go there. Paul says, because of our gospel, I typed that incorrectly, because our gospel did not come to you in word only, 
but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And by the Holy Spirit's saving power in your life, you now hate sin, or at least you should. You hate sin. And when you commit it, and when other people commit it around you, you hate it. Why? Here's the answer to your question, our question. Because God hates it. And his Holy Spirit lives in you. And Paul says that this Holy Spirit that lives in you is a pledge. It's a promise that you have a home in heaven waiting for you. Second Corinthians 5. You hate sin and you long for your eternal home. Why? Because you know that it is that sin, that sin that drove your Christ to die on that cross. The Puritan, John Flavel, said, O cursed sin, it was you who slew my dear Lord. For your sake he underwent all of this. If your vileness had not been so great, his sufferings would not have been so many. Cursed sin, you were the knife which stabbed him. You were the sword which pierced him. So that's how you know, church, that you are regenerated or being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. But while you are here in this fallen world, living as a child of Almighty God, you are called to be of good courage, even though Paul says in that same chapter, 2 Corinthians 5, that some people in your life might think that you have lost your ever-loving mind by becoming a Christian. Christ died for you and rose for you. And as such, you live for him now, not for yourselves. Because you want to. Because he made you want to. That's how gracious and loving and merciful he is to us. And because we are in Christ, you are a new creation. We've talked about this before. Old things have passed away. And behold, everything has become new. All of the bad and stupid things that we did in our old life, we no longer want to do, or at least we shouldn't. We shouldn't. Why? Because the new you is from God. God reconciled you back to himself through Jesus Christ. You are a new person in Christ. You are no longer an enemy of God. You are instead a child of God. You've been forgiven of your sins in Christ Jesus. That's the good news, people. That's the power that Paul's talking about of the gospel. 
If you are truly saved, then it won't be foolishness to you anymore. It will be the power of God unto salvation. Okay, let's get... Does everybody understand what I'm talking about? Okay. The Holy Spirit works in us to make us love Christ with every fiber of our being. That's a beautiful thing. It really is. Okay, let's get our bearings here and regroup our thoughts so that we can move on to additional things. As I sweat like a stuck pig. Um, In verses 17 and 18, over the past two weeks, we've looked at the saved and the perishing, obviously, last week and this week. We looked at foolishness and power, right? As it pertains to the salvific plan of God. And most importantly, we've looked at the Christ and his cross and the centrality of the gospel message, right? In addition to those things that I've just mentioned, there's another scriptural distinctive in these verses that we need to delve into and that is this, the wisdom of God as, as a, a motif or a characteristic. We'll call it a distinctive, okay? The wisdom of God as a distinctive that Paul talks about in great detail throughout not only the rest of chapter 1, okay, but through the entirety of chapter 2, especially up to verse 16 of chapter 2. And we will get into that next week, but what I would really like you to do between now and then is read 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. And when you do, please pay particular attention to Paul's contrast that he points out between God's wisdom and man's foolishness. It's in there a lot. And so... I want you to pay particular attention to that, and um, we will pick up there next week. Let's pray.